New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Once again, I'm going to be interviewing myself and I'm going to be following up on the previous in presence number 0215 for those of you who are particular about the numbers. And in that interview with myself, that's me, we talked about life after death and a particularly interesting evidential case, one that was touted by William James in the first great textbook of American psychology as evidence for the spiritualist interpretation of the self. That case was known as the Watsika Wonder, and it still stands today by many writers of books on life after death as an outstanding case providing evidence for the afterlife. But as you know, there's a problem with the case. The problem goes back to the great book written by Frederick Myers, published posthumously in 1903. And I know we're going to want to talk more about Frederick Myers, as a matter of fact, because he after his death began communicating. And the great book he wrote, of course, is Human Personality and its Survival of Bodily Death. This is a book that I think uh, any serious student of afterlife research would want to have in their library. And if they can find the Russell Targ edition published by Hampton Roads, they'll notice that you, that's me, wrote a, an interpretive introduction to the book. Now, what did Myers have to say about the Watsika Wonder case? Now we're getting down to the meat of, of the issue because oddly enough, he said this is not necessarily a case that promotes the afterlife hypothesis, the survival of human personality after death hypothesis. He indicated it as a case of pseudo-possession. Pseudo-possession, not actual possession. And the reason he thought that might be so was because there had been a lot of research at that point in time, the late 19th, early 20th century, regarding multiple personalities. And the idea that Myers was really referencing there is that the young girl, Laurency Venom, who supposedly had died or gone into some sort of a state of a remission of her personality, and another personality presented itself, that of a different child who lived across town and who had died more than a decade earlier named Mary Roth. Well, Myers thought it was pseudo-possession because he's suggesting that really what happened here is that the personality of Mary Roth wasn't an actual surviving spirit of a deceased individual, but was a secondary personality of Laurency Venom that had been suggested to her under hypnosis by Dr. Stevens and Mary Roth's father, who was there on the scene at the time. And that 
What happened basically was a secondary personality with extraordinary psychic gifts who was able to therefore glean information that would only have been known to Mary Roth herself or her family members, but not to Lorancy Venom, who really uh, up until that moment had no contact with the Roth family. So what you have is a secondary subpersonality with psychic gifts masquerading as a possessing spirit of a dead child. That was the hypothesis that Myers put forward in his great 1903 book, Human Personality and Survival After Death. Very interesting. Now, of course, such a hypothesis is sometimes referred to as super psi in the literature. More recently, the term living agent psi is preferred because uh, researchers say, we don't know the outer limits of psi. Why do you call it super psi? Super psi implies that we never see this. But now, the interesting thing, of course, and I'm fascinated by this idea, is that living people can exhibit as much psychic ability as the supposed dead, as a ghost, as the deceased. So, let's just call it living agent psi. And naturally, the fact that under hypnosis, it was, one might say, suggested to Lorancy Venom in her condition, that the spirit of Mary Roth would come forth. Now, as one reads the accounts of the case, of course, it seems as if it wasn't suggested so much to her as it came forth from her. What happened was, well, I'll let you tell the story. Thank you. I'm happy to tell the story. What happened was that under hypnosis administered by Dr. Stevens, who had been brought to the home of the Venom family by Mr. Roth himself. Because as a spiritualist, he was concerned for Lorancy Venom. Uh, the rumors were going about the tiny little town of Watsika, Illinois, that this child might be sent off to Chicago to an insane asylum, where even though there might be some semblance of care for her, insane asylums in, in those days were like huge warehouses for the mentally ill. I know because I worked in a mental health facility in Illinois after I graduated from college in, in Madison. And, and those establishments, I worked in a very modern one that was replacing the outdated, gigantic, warehouse institutions where the mentally ill were kept in the state of Illinois. So, it was certainly an act of compassion not to want Mary Roth to have to spend the rest of her days institutionalized like that. And so, Mr. Roth suggested that a spiritualist doctor he knew, Dr. E. Winchester Stevens from Janesville, Wisconsin, should come and meet with the family, and maybe he could provide a cure. And he hypnotized Lorancy Venom, who was having fits, who, who, who was obviously very ill. I mean, to the point where the, the family would lose their beloved daughter and, and would do so willingly because they thought they had no other choice. And under hypnosis, several troublesome entities or spirits or subpersonalities, if you will, appeared and 
Dr. Stevens basically suggested to Mary, well, it appears that you're about, you're going to be controlled by these other personalities, these other spirits. Wouldn't it be better for you if you had a friendly spirit taking control? And Lurancy, under hypnosis, said yes, and she began naming other spirits, you know, in her trance state and her states of fits. She said she was going to heaven and talking to spirits and talking to angels. And she listed a number of potential friendly spirits that might be able to come and take possession of her body. And one of them was Mary Roth, the daughter of Mr. Roth himself, who had died earlier. And Mr. Roth said, well, that would be wonderful. We, we'd like to see Mary. And it was agreed. And in fact, as I recall, under hypnosis, the suggestion was that Mary would return for a period of months and then she would go away and Lorancy would have her own body back, which is in fact more or less what happened. As I mentioned in the previous discussion we had about this, Lorancy, or you could say the Mary personality, actually went and lived with the Roth family. She understood people by their nicknames. She expressed affection for them. She treated her biological parents, the Venoms, with respect and courtesy, but she didn't have the same affection. In fact, she acted as if she hardly knew them. So, that's why William James and the researcher Richard Hodgson and the people of the town of Watsika, Illinois, I think were quite inclined to the spiritualist interpretation that even though it was the body of Lorancy Venom, it was certainly the spirit of Mary Roth. Although, once or twice, as I recall, Lorancy came back briefly. But basically, for three months, Mary Roth was the dominant personality. Obviously, the case has weaknesses due to the fact that there was direct communication between the Roth family and the Venom family prior to the appearance of Mary Roth. So, the possibility of suggestion under hypnosis, the possibility of multiple personalities that Myers favored can't be ignored. But, it's worth pointing out that there are other cases of possession of this sort. This is, it's an extremely rare phenomena. It, uh, maybe there are a handful of cases, less than a dozen, I think, of, of really well understood, well researched cases in the annals of parapsychology and psychical research. And I'm talking now about 140 years of study of this phenomenon. So, it is, it is uncommon. But nevertheless, there are some good cases. For example, the case of Sumitra Singh and Shiva Tripathi. Let's talk about that. This case is a much more recent case. It really started around 1985. Sumitra Singh was a married woman. She had children. She began experiencing fits. She began going into altered states of consciousness. She, at one point, became very ill. She said she was about to die. It appeared as if, in fact, she had died. 
The family was preparing, I think, for a cremation, a funeral, but then she was revived. There are different accounts of exactly how it happened, that she, this process may have gone on for about a week. But then, at one point in July 1985, she revived. Only when she revived, she seemed to be a completely different person. Now, Sumitra Singh was basically a, a woman of very little education. She could barely read and write. She had never gone uh, to f have any formal schooling. Uh, but she said that her name was Shiva. And she said she had two children named Tinku and Rinku. She said that she had been murdered by her sister-in-law. And furthermore, she seemed to be an educated, cultured woman, and she wanted to reconnect with her original family, the Tripathi family. She said she was Shiva Tripathi, although Shiva was a nickname. The actual name, I believe, was Arun. This is in India. And the Singh family didn't know what to make of this. The new personality of Shiva didn't even seem to recognize the original family at all. And a period of about three months elapsed before word of this strange occurrence reached the family of Shiva Tripathi, who was an actual individual who had apparently been murdered or was killed or committed suicide, threw herself uh, into a, a train or body, I think, was found on uh, the railroad tracks. It was cremated. Quickly thereafter, the Tripathi family, which is the uh, family of uh, Shiva's birth parents, sued because they felt she had been murdered. And it was only some months later that they, the rumor came that in, in another village six, uh, about a hundred kilometers away, 60 miles, that there was the uh, apparent possession taking place that their daughter had taken over the body of another woman and was claiming to be their daughter and they arranged to visit and as soon as they visited, she hugged them, she kissed them, she treated them warmly, she called them by their nicknames, she wanted to see her children, make sure they were taken care of, which appears to be a very important condition in not only possession, but reincarnation is the need to come back, the unfinished business that needs to be attended to. And the interesting thing about this case, as compared to the case of Laurency Venom and Mary Roth, is that there was no contact between the two families prior to the ostensible possession. One couldn't attribute it to some sort of suggestion or hypnosis. And also, in terms of the evidentiality of the case, evidentiality of the case is the fact that it lasted for the rest of Sumitra's life. Uh, and I'm talking about the body of Sumitra because Shiva, the personality of Shiva, the spirit of Shiva, remained in that body until she died in 1998. 
Uh, in fact, when she first appeared, she indicated that uh, while she had been dead in the in the realm of uh, of the Hindu deities of uh, Yama and the and the deities of death, they were discussing, and they say said she died too early before her time. They were finding a way for her to return, and she announced at one point that she would be around for another ten or twelve years. And I think it was thirteen years she remained there. She stayed married to the husband of uh, Sumitra Singh, Yagdish Singh, who lived another 10 years after uh, Shiva or Sumitra died in 1998. Yagdish died in 2008. An interesting thing about this case is that in around 2010, another set of researchers, Antonia Mills from Canada went back and conducted additional research. This case was heavily researched by people both from the United States, Canada, and India. It was well known in the newspapers of India at the time, as a matter of fact. But it appears as if the surviving personality of Shiva Tripathi remained in the body of Sumitra Singh for 13 years consistently. And very interestingly, in this case, as I mentioned earlier, Shiva had a college education. She wrote letters. She clearly expressed herself using much more sophisticated language than the uneducated Sumitra Singh. In fact, the Tripathi family wanted to, in effect, adopt the Singhs as, as their daughter, and, and they tried to find work for Sumitra's husband, Yagdish Singh. Now, that didn't work out too well because in India, the idea of receiving a male in India receiving support of that sort from the in-laws was looked down upon. And Yagdish got a job because the Tripathi family helped him out, but it didn't work out. These people were doing basically farm labor and in the village where they lived, and then occasionally they would travel to Delhi and find other kinds of temporary employment when they weren't working in the fields in their village. So they lived, I think, a kind of marginal existence, but Shiva, who found herself married to a stranger, and, and she was very uncomfortable. She'd look at her body and she'd say, this isn't me. These people, they're not my family. But she realized that this is where she was and she accommodated to the circumstances. They even had two more children, as a matter of fact, before she died. So, when Antonia Mills reviewed the case, in, in 2010, she regarded it as a very strong case supporting the survival hypothesis. It didn't have some of the weaknesses that one found in the Watsika Wonder case in terms of the, the potential of uh, hypnotic suggestion, the, the possibility of uh, multiple personality. Uh, although, you know, if if you were looking at it skeptically, you could say, yes, it was a secondary personality with extraordinary psychic ability. You could say that. Now, 
one of the wrinkles in this case, of course, is that there was a question about Shiva Tripathi having been murdered by the family of her, of Shiva's husband. His name, incidentally, is Chetty Lal Duetti, the original husband of Shiva Tripathi. When Antonio Mills interviewed Chetty Lal Duetti about it, he said that when he went to see Shiva, the uh, you could say reincarnated. Sometimes this is called, incidentally, a replacement reincarnation, as if what seems to have happened in this circumstance is that Shiva came and bumped off the personality, the original personality of Sumitra Singh and, and took over the body. So, in in some circles, that's called a replacement reincarnation. And researchers have to acknowledge that there's a fine line between reincarnation and possession. It's hard to exactly determine, although in most cases it's assumed that this is reincarnation, that the person who, who, who died, died long before the reborn person. But sometimes the death occurs after the New person has has been born, and the implication is that the original personality was they use the phrase bumped out, <laughs> and the new personality comes in. But in any case, when Chetty Lal Duetti came to see his reincarnated wife, let let us say in in the body of Sumitra Singh, she acted as if she didn't recognize him, and the original members of that family, the Duetti, the Lal Duetti family, were, were very hostile to the whole idea that they were being accused of murder. Now, maybe rightfully so, because murders of this sort did occur in India. They, they were well-known cases of, of murder in which a wife was murdered in order that the family could receive, I don't know, a larger dowry maybe from a new wife or something, or they were unhappy with the size of the dowry. There were numbers of cases, I think over a thousand, two thousand maybe, such cases reported in India at that time. And the Tripathi family felt that uh, this had happened. And, and in fact, when Shiva appeared in the body of Sumitra Singh. Her first statements were that she had been murdered, that her sister-in-law had crushed her head with a brick. And it seems suspicious. The Tripathi family immediately filed charges and the uh, body was cremated so quickly that the Tripathi family didn't even have a chance to see the body before the cremation occurred, even though they had requested that uh, a little time be given so that they could see the body. Uh, so, you have <laughs> my specialties here. A, a combination of a, a criminology and parapsychology at work in in this particular case. What do you think we can derive from these cases of possession? Why do they stand out as being highly evidential of the survival of human personality hypothesis? 
The, there are two reasons. For one, you seem to have an intact personality that expresses itself emotionally. It has the memories of the original person. And there's continuity. In the Watsika Wonder case, the continuity lasted for three months, which, uh, although that's short in comparison to the Shiva Sumitra case, it's, uh, which lasted some 13 years, it's still quite long when you compare it to the kinds of communications that occur during seances with mediums where you will only have uh, a, a personality manifesting through a medium for a matter of minutes or maybe in, in extreme cases, hours. But when you're talking months and years, it does suggest that an intact personality is surviving after death. So you have both the enormous variety of expressions in the personality. For example, Shiva in the body of Sumitra throughout that 12-13 year period expressed herself as an educated, as a college educated woman, not an uneducated woman at all. She maintained that status. She insisted on being referred to as Shiva the entire time. That was who she felt that she was. Uh, there are other cases that have lasted even longer. There's a case we know of that lasted for some 60 years, although the problem is that we were never able to identify the original personality there. But in looking at these kinds of cases, it's very useful to try and assemble as many of them as possible. And why is that? The reason is that every case has its weaknesses, but when you see them all together, the weaknesses of one case may be overcome by the strengths of another case. And when you look at them all together, they seem to provide a very strong case for human survival, especially when you combine not only cases of possession and reincarnation and near-death experience and deathbed visions and terminal lucidity uh, all together, not to mention mediumistic communications, you, you begin to see quite a detailed picture of what it means when we talk about the survival of human consciousness. Well, I expect that uh, you and I will be having many more conversations about this topic. It really deserves a careful look. It's understandable that people are going to be skeptical of the whole idea. I'm skeptical. And the reason I'm skeptical, and I think the reason that many people are skeptical, is we don't want to deceive ourselves. The notion that we could survive the death of our physical body is very tantalizing, but the idea of self-deception is not very tantalizing. So, I want to examine the evidence carefully, and I think that's the appropriate attitude. Well, once again, I'd like to thank you for being with me. And for those of you watching and listening, I'd like to thank you for being with us.